All right, uh, happy Ash Wednesday to all of you. Happy Ash Wednesday, glad uh, to see you all. We, if you want to uh, either catch the service again because uh, you had fallen asleep during the service earlier today, you can catch it online. Um, if you fell asleep, that's great. I, certainly at the 7 a.m. I probably would have fallen asleep. Five minutes of silence, I'm good to go. So you can catch it online if you would uh, like to, che- to, to catch that. Um, big thanks to my friend, our friend Joel last week. He did a phenomenal job. I was very excited to obviously have him up and then to listen to what he has to say. Um, so he's just one of those guys that when you are around him, you're like, this guy's a cool guy. So. I don't know if he mentioned that he is the executive director of the Center for Pastor Theologians. And if you would have known that before he started, it probably would have made a lot more sense why he like, throw the Bible out of here, let's talk theology. Which I know that's not what he did, but he certainly has a bent towards that. So uh, We are going to be in the rest of chapter 3 this uh, night. And so, if you missed last week, I would highly, highly, highly recommend uh, picking it up. Um, Yeah, I thought thought it was was great. So, I've done my two minutes of delay for those who may be running late, so let's pray. Father God, we come to you this evening, and uh, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the meaning of this day and the start of the season that we have deemed as Lent. And so we just ask that you would be with us tonight in something that is familiar that we've been doing week in and week out, and yet uh, this night starts a new uh, period of our calendar and also hopefully of our spiritual formation and our focus on you. And so tonight we, we lift up this time to you, we lift up this season to you, and we pray that your spirit would be working in us and not only in tonight, but also in the days as we lead up towards Easter and think about ways in which we can uh, continue to be formed into your image and to take on the mind of your son, Jesus. So help us with that pursuit uh, tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, here we are. I love when, when one person comes in and then another person is like, where did they sit? Uh, so we are concluding a section uh, that really, if you remember, we started back up in 2.11. Uh, we're not going to go all the way back up to 2.11, but we are concluding that section. Um, and then next week, as we move into 4, we're kind of moving into a, a new thought uh, pattern. So he says, finally, and it's when he says finally, Oftentimes it spurs in us like, oh, he must be almost done uh, with the letter, which is not necessarily the case. His finally is concluding this thought, this thought of how do we relate to one another in particular. Um, The last two weeks we've been talking about being subject to one another. And so he's he's saying finally uh, in this thought process, all of you, Um, Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 
do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for the bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from seeking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he again reminds them he's a big fan of these types of lists and he gives them another list. And we always have to remember in in this letter, he's, he's speaking to people who are uh, currently followers of Jesus Christ in Asia Minor. And so his instructions here are how are they to relate towards one, to one another. And he says, all of you have unity of mind. And it's interesting because this concept of unity of mind keeps uh, coming up. It's been coming up in Philippians. It will come up again um, this Sunday, it comes, it's been coming up throughout the book of Peter, 1 Peter, and, and the importance of the church being of singular mind or being unified of the same mind. Now, the challenge with that is we say, well, what are we to be unified about? So what are the things that we are to unite our minds around? And this is where it gets tricky, and we have talked about this before, we, we are to be united around the essentials. And the problem that we often do is our list of essentials is far greater than it should be. <laughs> I mean, look at denominationalism in the United States of America, and it is around the ever-growing list of essentials. <laughs> if you've ever thought... I'm not sure I like the music at such and such church. I should probably leave. That fits into the non-essential category. That is a personal preference category. But we create churches within churches so that we can be together. We have this silo mentality where if we are not of the same mind, if you are, don't share my same mentality then I exclude you from my group, and so we want to just be around people that have the same mind. The problem with that, again, is what are the essentials that we are to unite our minds around? Well, we've been talking about some of them, uh, and it's the essential character of who Jesus is, Jesus coming in the flesh, the resurrection, these types of core Doctrines are what Peter is calling the church to unite their minds around. The challenge is um, we can often misuse this. We can misuse this and say, if you don't believe what I believe, then you are a heretic. And so I can take the role of authority and say, these are the things that you are to believe, and if you don't believe them, then we can just uh, send you along by the wayside. And, and so we, we're afraid to push back. We're afraid to um, question, ask questions. We were having this extended discussion today at lunch, and, and really it would be my, my firm desire and hope that when we come back together, 
at the 750-ish, that if you have a, a question, you would say, uh, excuse me, I have a question. Or even better yet, as we're going through the night, you're like, hmm, I'm not sure I heard that right. Uh, excuse me, Eric, I have a question. That would be wonderful. I would celebrate that. I would say woohoo. But, but for so long, we're taught to, well, I can't, I can't disagree because then I'm breaking this rule around unity of mind. And so we, we misunderstand what this concept or this call to unity is. Because there is great value in pushback, in uh, verbal sparring. You know, when you spar, you have headgear on, nobody really gets hurt. <laughs> and so, to say that we are to be unified of mind is not to say we can't ever disagree with one another. But we've bought into this concept of the only people that I surround myself with is people that agree on every single point that I agree with, and I only read books that I agree with, and then we enter into this echo chamber, this silo, where we don't ever fully understand uh, what, it, what this world looks like or how to be united. This is not in my notes, but it is perfectly on point. If somebody ever says to you, this is very highly controversial. Well, from a Christian worldview, do me a favor and reject them out of hand. <laughs> Why is there a problem with saying from a Christian worldview? The problem is, whose Christian worldview are we speaking of? And so we make this blanket statement and we say the person who is uh, almost always white, Western, and has multiple academic degrees, that's the Christian worldview we're speaking of. And we reject completely any, any worldview that is based on Christ from a other cultural context. I had this interesting uh, texting dialogue with some friends uh, about this and about how we view the atonement. And I have this great book. It's uh, called The Triune Atonement. And it's about looking at the crucifixion and resurrection, the atonement of Christ, from a uh, Korean perspective. It is not an, a white American perspective. And, and that... That's okay. That's actually beneficial. Again, off the soapbox has nothing to do with what was in my notes. I was not planning on saying that. I just went down this rabbit trail. All that to say, to be unified of mind is to be unified around the essentials. And we say, well, what are the essentials? Well, if you've ever looked at our statement of faith, you can see what some of those essentials are. And then he gets into this other list, or further into the list, sympathy. Part of that is, um, gets into the concept of tender heart. 
brotherly love or, uh, you know, the word Philadelphia comes from this concept of brotherly love, love towards fellow believers, a tender heart, and a humble mind. We typically don't have questions around uh, unity if we're coming from uh, with a tender heart and a humble mind. This tender heart concept immediately made me think about uh, how does my heart become calloused and how do I remove those calluses from my heart so that I remain tender-hearted? Well, from life experience, often we become jaded around certain things and Peter is calling us back to this tender heart position. And then, this is, I mean, verse 9 is a, a verse we'd probably like to skip over, except it occurs, well, again and again throughout the New Testament. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. So evil for evil, this, this concept right here is, again, almost directly out of Romans chapter 12, verse 17, when Paul says basically the exact same thing. Likewise, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he, he says the same thing. When we are followers of Jesus Christ and somebody does something to us, we don't get revenge. When somebody does an evil to us, we don't get payback. That's not what we like to hear. As I mentioned uh, on Sunday, um, some of Maddie's friends were, got into a bit of a prank war. That's always a bad idea. <laughs> there was a prank war that was happening at Bethel uh, when I was working security, and I got a call, uh, 3150, could you go up to the Chalberg lot? Have I told this story before? Yeah, yep, on my way. There was a dead, full deer in the back of these girls' cloth seat Toyota Camry. Not good. Not good on a whole number of levels. But it was the essence of, you do this to me, I do this to you. You did this to me, I do this to you. And then before you know it, you got dead animals in the back of your car. And I'm like, who did this to your car? Well, we can't tell you. What? <laughs> Come on! The world says, you punch me, I punch you back. The old adage... There's going to be three hits. You hit me, I hit you, you hit the floor. Not exactly what we're talking about when we talk about what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we have to understand, Peter is writing into a context where these people are being persecuted and killed and all of these bad things. And we, somebody says something negative about us especially online, and we fire back because we have righteous indignation. We have every right to say all these things. No. <laughs> the words of Jesus are when somebody does something to you, 
you take it. We don't like that. Yes. Oh, see. We don't seek revenge, but we can seek justice through legal means. I think, um, I think you could probably make that case because in this case, what he is saying is uh, direct evil for evil. And I think pursuing justice through the legal system, you could make a case that that would be acceptable. I would uh, caution that because uh, I think you could probably make a biblical case against that. Um, When Jesus says, if somebody takes something from you, you give them even more. So if somebody takes something from me and I seek retribution because I think it's biblically warranted, Jesus might say, hmm, From a worldly perspective, absolutely. But I think we're challenged a little bit more on the biblical concept of retribution. But I think you could try to make that case. It'd be fun to to talk about specifics. What Peter is saying here in particular, though, is when somebody does something to you directly, you don't seek to get an eye for an eye which again, we really struggle with. He says, but on the contrary, which means the exact opposite. Bless. So it's not even just about swallowing our pride, not getting revenge, not fighting back, but it's actually about then going the extra step and blessing them. Whoa! So somebody does something to me and rather than getting revenge, even if I find it to be completely warranted, I turn around and I bless them. That is hard. (laughs) Especially when it says, for to this you were called. (laughs) (laughs) So what have you been called to today? Well, you know, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I've been called to bless those who do bad things to me. I'd like to go to a different church. Yes. Yeah, so great, great question. So, you know, we're talking about brotherly love in the context of the church. So is this in the context only of the church? And we certainly would like it to be, except we probably wouldn't like it to be because much like in any family, the hardest thing to do is when somebody in your family does something to you to not get revenge and then to actually do something nice for them. Like, what? Stranger? Okay, I can buy that. This person who I'm related to? No. So yeah, great question. And again, 
you know, if we want to look at this in such a narrow way and say, well, let me make a case that this is only about how we relate to, to fellow followers of Jesus Christ, I think we undercut a whole portion of the Bible in Jesus' teaching about how that looks in the, in the world. You know, somebody takes something from you. Have you ever had somebody break into your car and steal something? That's why I don't ever lock my car. That's why I leave the keys in it almost 99% of the time. You're like, whoever stole that thing from me, I'm going to get revenge. But in this case, somebody breaks into your car or your house or something like that, steals something of great value from you, you find out who it is, you go to their house, you knock on the door, here I got a few more things that you'd probably like. (laughs) What? Like, Peter is out of his mind. Like, that is not the Christianity that I'm signed up for. For to this you were called. This is where we, if we stopped here, we'd miss it. That you may obtain a blessing. Okay, now we're talking. And if we remember last week, Peter was talking about, and he's been talking throughout the book of 1 Peter, when we do this, we will receive this blessing. Or if we don't do this, we will not receive this blessing. So remember last week when he was talking about how uh, being obedient in, in our relationships with one another, what is the result? There is a blessing that comes about when we are uh, obedient to what God has called us to do. Now part of this, it gets interesting because commentators, they, they go a couple different ways. Uh, they say, well, certainly the blessing that he is talking about is like a future blessing in heaven. And that's a very... Uh, I think that's a very low view of what Jesus meant when he said, I have come so that you may have abundant life. The, the challenge, as we've been talking through, throughout various portions of Scripture very recently, is we interpret this as the prayer of Jabez, as health and wealth gospel. If I respond this way, God will bless me financially, uh, fiscally, in, in all these different things. And that's not exactly where we're going for. There's a big, big group between you're going to be blessed once you get to heaven. You know, all those crowns, those jewels you've been saving up in your crown. Those will come later. And you're going to be overabundantly wealthy and have all the toys that you want in this world. There's a middle ground And I think that's usually where the answer is. So it makes us question, what does it look like to be blessed? What does it look like to bless other people? How is it that I uh, experience blessings? And what are the things that God does in my life that are direct blessings that I'm like, oh, wow, God, you are incredible. Thank you for this. I mean, I would say in the past, you know, 
3,700, 800 some days. There have been far less days where I haven't felt like, God, you have blessed me immensely (laughs) when I walk through those doors and go to my office. That's a bit hyperbole. The vast majority of the time, I think, God, thank you for the blessing of living in Nisswa, working at Timberwood Church. Thank you for this. He says, for, and then he quotes Psalm 34, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. You know, in some ways, this is a, this is a handbook for if you want to experience uh, things in life that are, are quality, follow what God is calling you to do, which is a bit ironic for Peter to say in the light of the punishment that they face and persecution that they face, but it's all a matter of perspective. He says, let him or her turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Again, these are things that, that concepts that we think when we talk through uh, the Sermon on the Mount this summer, we say, you know, we say, blessed are the peacemakers. And when we, when we hear a verse like this about pursuing peace or seeking peace, we can very easily slide into not peacemaking, but peacekeeping. And Beth Moore, in one of her studies, has a, has a big conversation about this. And, and it's, blessed are the peacemakers, those folks who desire and pursue shalom in other people's lives. We translate that into Peacekeeping, which is what? The police. (laughs) Well, I don't want to say anything because I'll upset that person. Don't rock the boat. Don't rock the boat, baby. You know, we see something happening, and we're like, yeah, if I say something, it's going to cause a kerfuffle, and I want to be a peacemaker. No, you want to be a peacekeeper because peacemakers is a very hard thing to do. And when we keep the peace, oftentimes it's the opposite of peace. It's the status quo that we're trying to maintain. And Peter says here we are to pursue peace. Pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. Remember what he said last week about prayers being hindered? He's switching that up. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Hashtag blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, not if, 
Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So he gets done quoting from Psalm 34, and he says, Now, because of this information, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? I mean, zealous is not a word that we typically associate with positive context. If somebody is zealous, they are uh, typically out of control. They're a fanatic. And we don't use it in, in glowing terms. Uh, people often refer to my zeal towards certain subject matters as like, you are, you're a fanatic. Like, can't you just like something like partway? Like, if you like something, you just like it so much and you know all these things about it. Like, could you not just be average in, in, your, in your desire to bit, get into something? And so then I figure out that, that my family, meaning my wife and kids, have these like side looks and side glances and side comments about certain things that I become zealous about. And in fact, this last week, we were out to eat with the kids and I wanted to ask the server a question. And they start snapping pictures to Nikki because she's not there about, see, dad is so weird. I'm not weird, I'm zealous. Oftentimes, though, we're zealous for the wrong things. I mean, what does it look like to be zealous for good? Passionate for the things that are deemed by God as good. What if we were as passionate about the things of God that are good as we are about our favorite fill-in-the-blank? What does it mean to be zealous for what is good? That's a bonus question. Probably one of the best questions that we came up with at lunch. I chose to disregard it. And so I just want to say that. David's forgiven me. He will continue to ask questions. But that's just a bonus question. It's not in your, it's not in your questions for later. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, he's saying, why would you be punished for doing good things? We, we, we've traced that, those steps before. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. How in the world is suffering a blessing? Suffering is a blessing when it is the will of God and it's drawing us closer and closer to him. That's how suffering is a blessing. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. The, the, the interesting conversation around this is fear of who? Is it the people that are persecuting them for doing the good? Is it the people that are persecuting them for following Christ? What is it they're not to be troubled about? Is it they're not to be troubled about what's coming from the suffering, or is it the people that they're not to be troubled about? And it's all of the above. 
they are to not fear any worldly opponent. The only fear that they are to have is a fear of God. And the contrast to that that he uses in this next verse is honor in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So the opposite of fear is honoring Christ in your heart as holy. And we've talked through this word a little bit. Holy can be completely righteous, meaning without blemish, or it can be set apart. So when we talk about a holy nation, remember that a few weeks ago we talked about the church is a holy nation. It's not a perfect group of people. It's a group of people that are set apart. It's like the white couch in the formal living room. Like, it's holy, not because it's white, it's because you don't touch it. And he paints this picture of what would it look like if our hearts were holy, meaning set apart for Christ. Or to say it slightly differently, Christ is the only thing that our hearts beat for, meaning holy, separate. And then then he just kind of keeps going. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Ah, why? Why? And I'll tell you, when I first was tasked with finding people to do their face stories and someone would say, no, I don't want to do my face story, I would just light those folks up. And maybe some of you, I did, and for that, I apologize. The Holy Spirit has done a work in my heart, and I have changed. You're laughing, but I, I, honestly, I have changed. Peter says it. Paul says it to Timothy. We are to be ready at all times to testify to what God has done in our life. Be prepared. Now, this word for defense is, is not a legal term because commentators that, that don't like to share their faith, <laughs> they say, well, this is a court case. No, it's not a court case. There is no grounds that this is some sort of legal defense. This is when somebody comes up to you and says, why do you act the way that you do? I guess because I'm from Minnesota. Now, We are to be prepared to share the good news of what Jesus Christ has done in our life. And part of that preparation is literally typing out or writing out what God has done in our life. And no, this is not a setup. Because I am fully, I fully believe, both hands to the air, that the Holy Spirit is the one who decides who is up here doing their face story. You're like, the Holy Spirit needs to get to work because I'd like him to come back. Amen. Yeah. See, we don't get an amen for the salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of blood. We get an amen because 
I like a faith story and I want it back. Amen. Woohoo. Writing out what God has done in your life is a spiritual discipline that, that almost everyone that I work with, when they get done with their faith story, I say, thank you so much for doing this and your willingness to do this. And they say, you know what? I didn't realize how important this was and what a piece of spiritual work it was in my life to put that on paper. And Peter says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. Asks you what? A reason for the hope that is in you. Which begs the question, is the hope in us? And if the hope is in us, do we act in such a way that declares, I've got the hope in me? And so it would bring someone to say, help me understand, how is it that you have the hope that you do where you're at? And you say, well, actually, let me tell you. And you're ready. You know, there are folks, when they, when they experience a tragedy in their life, you know, the challenge becomes, this can easily become a feeling suppression mechanism. And, and I'm well aware of that. I've been on this uh, campaign in my life for the past about 300 days to embrace this concept of feeling. I threw somebody off tonight when I said, how, do you, how are you feeling? They're like, I don't know what that question means. Because we say, well, how are you doing? Oh, fine. Yeah, fine. But when we say, how are you feeling? It's like, I don't think I'm really at that level where I care to share with you. And so this isn't about suppressing true emotion and when we're in the place of a tragedy, lamenting to God about what we're experiencing. This is not that. When we experience something, though, and we see that we can, we can be a light for God in that situation, then we, we exude hope and we make an impact. And people say, how is it that you act this way? There's a friend who's, who's testifying to this, sent me a message the other day, and I'm like, Praise God. People are like, how can you be like this? And the answer is, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and this life is just the beginning. And this is where it gets hard, even harder for me. Do this with gentleness and respect. Not great things in my life. First time I ever tried to cross-country ski, Nikki's like, ha! Gentle. Not really something I'm good at. This is not bullhorn guy who stands with a poster on the corner saying, you're all going to hell if you don't know Jesus Christ. That's not what Peter's saying. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. If we are suffering for God's will, we should embrace it. 
I've done a sufficient job in eliminating most of our time so that when we get into the really complex stuff, we'll be like, sorry, out of time. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, and that he might bring us to God. We've been talking about this before, this image of being carried on the cross, our sins being carried on the cross, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. To quote Martin Luther indirectly, this is for you, Russ. Verse 19 of 1 Peter chapter 3 is one of the most obtuse and confusing verses in all the New Testament. So let's dig in. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, all of eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. What does that even mean? (laughs) There is a 40-plus page appendix in this short commentary that dissects all of the main five arguments for what does he mean by uh, spirits? What does he mean by in prison? (laughs) Fascinating read, right? Not really. (laughs) There's all this complex stuff around when does he go to prison? Who were these people that were in prison? Who are the spirits? Are they human beings? Are they uh, angelic spirits? Remember back when we were talking in Jude about Genesis chapter 6 and the Nephilim and the, uh, the stuff that was going on in 6, pre-flood, that maybe had precipitated the flood, pun intended, What we know is we don't know. (laughs) We literally do not know what Peter is talking about here. Because when we start to go down certain rabbit trails and we make cases for what he might mean, one of them is Jesus going into hell to say, you all were wrong. I won, and see you later. Not really the Jesus that I'm aware of in the Bible. Or is this Jesus speaking through Noah in advance of the flood, and the grammar that he is using is talking about people in a peculiar way that is confusing? Well, We know it's confusing, but we're not exactly sure what he is trying to do. What we do know is he is communicating to us that God is patient with us, that he will always provide a remnant, no matter what transpires on this earth, this vision of Noah, and that God is serious about the things that he says 
about doing evil and the consequences of doing evil? And is he setting up, remember one of the, one of the arguments around uh, 1 Peter is that it is a baptismal sermon. This would be a great place to point and say, see, he's talking about baptism directly and he's talking about the flood and he's using the flood as this uh, larger metaphor for God baptizing the earth, cleansing it of the sinful people, bringing people out to life. I mean, these are all fascinating things that I'm aware. Probably less than one of you (laughs) actually cares about. But I would be remiss to not at least mention these things. And it's great here, he talks about the importance of baptism, not in any way because it's salvific, but because of what it represents. It is this representation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is in heaven at the right hand of God in his position of power and authority, And notice how he concludes this section. He says, no matter what happens on this earth, when we talk about subjugation and who's under who and all of these things, he concludes this section by saying, we all must be very clear. Jesus Christ is the number one authority and we are all subject to him. Just like this morning and at noon in our Ash Wednesday service, at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And Peter retains the truth of that. And that should bring us great comfort. Go to your Groups that you were in previously, and we will see what happens. If you haven't been in a group, then you'll be wandering around like, I don't know what to do, and then I'll know that you haven't been in a group.